Good morning. Good morning, everybody. It's time to get started on another session at Adelaide Writers Week. Good morning. My name's Tom Wright. It's my privilege this morning to host the session where we interview the Australian legendary voice and writer, Don Watson. Uh, acknowledging that we're here on the floodplains of the Ghana land and we acknowledge and pay respect to them as the traditional custodians of this country and thank them for their continuing custodianship of this land. Watsonia. It's a bulbous species of plant that was once famous in gardens and has been replaced by other perhaps more popular ones. It's also a suburb of Melbourne, which was once famous for containing a spy base and was considered to be a nuclear target. But Watsonia is also the collection of the writings of Don Watson, or as it might be called, the Big Red Book, Watsonia, A Writing Life. Don's unable to be here with us in Adelaide, but we do have him coming from Melbourne. Welcome, Don Watson. Hello, Tom. It's wonderful to see you, Don, it's, and it's an, an extraordinary privilege to read your book. I'm, uh, you're taken into what, this extraordinary land, which Watsonia, which is in part Ruritania and in part an uh, Australia we recognise intimately. We can't cover everything. The survey of the book is extraordinary, from language to contemporary politics, your time as a screenwriter, your time as a historian, um, thoughts about individuals, the extraordinary Brian Fitzpatrick being one. But I thought I might just therefore <laughs> pick and choose, if you'll forgive me, some of the um, topics that you cover. And we might just start with Caledonia Australis, if that's all right with you. Your 1984 book about the history of the white settlement of what came to be called Gippsland on the Gurnai land. Um, and then, of course, in, in 2009, you revisited it. And the, it, I'm quoting here from your um, essay where, or your introduction where you revisit it, where you leap straight into the business of Australian history in dealing with the nature by which we took possession of the land, the issue of white responsibility for what happened in the possession of the land, and the, our relationship to our forebears and their legacy to us. And there's, a, there's a comment you make that there's a sort of a puerile and offensive assumption that to speak of the dark events of our past in some way risks losing our respect for the people who built our Australia, that in some way you can't have both. You can't have both the respect and the acknowledgement. Just a question, how do we simultaneously respect and excoriate if we have to? Uh, well, I, I think that probably is a problem for virtually anyone who writes history. Um, and it's certainly a problem for someone who grew up on a, a small farm, which you know was only a few generations, like about three generations. Um, removed from its uh, ownership by Aboriginal people, about whom we knew precisely nothing. Um, but, you know, it's, there were sort of, you know, there was a sort of Oedipal rebellion, I suppose, in the 1970s and 80s when all this revisionist history was written. Um, but it doesn't mean that you, that you, and, 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 my parents and others thought I'd become a bit of a ratbag by writing this stuff. Why are you digging up the past, you know? Uh, in the course of which I discovered we had convict forebears, second fleet forebears and all that, which my mother said, well, that's exactly what I told you. If you dig around, you'll find this sort of thing. Um, and um, she never saw it as a badge of honour as most people do these days. But, um, you know, I think... 
in the end, you have no choice but to sort of respect your own, you know, where you came from and to recognise it for what it is. Um, but I, I've never... It always seems to me that there is, a, there is a junction in the human mind and part of it wants you to go forward and the other part wants you to either stay still or go back. Um, the idea, you know, that when, when certain politicians um, talk about how we must move on, as they often say, if, uh, it's, it's like they're learning the lesson of Lot's wife or something. Now, if we look back, that's the end of everything, you know. Um, but it's actually just a matter of political convenience, really. I mean, we do look back. The past besieges us. You know, there is, there is no escape from the past. And it, 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 it doesn't bring us undone to think of it um, critically, uh, it seems to me. We just have to live with these problems. To give you another example, Tom, if, if you look at the... Um, if you look at diaries, frontier diaries, settler diaries in Australia, they're usually kept by women. Um, the, the more interesting ones, at least, the ones that reflect on things, you'll often, if not always explicitly, you can always sense in there someone who's in, entirely with the moment and wants to succeed on this land, but at the same time, uh, he or she, usually she, regrets the passing of things. Um, the fact that much that's being <coughs> undone can never be done again. That, that even the, that includes the removal of, of the Aboriginal people. It also includes the, the destruction of the environment, the loss of um, home, uh, much else. But it didn't make these people um, incapable of getting on with life. It, if anything, it made them stronger for an honest appraisal of what was there. So I've never, I, I don't know how we're meant to accept this denialism, this idea that, that our history is uh, to be looked away from. Um, well, you, and I mean, sorry, it catches up with you in the end anyway. So. Well, indeed, we can't escape it, but you do make elsewhere, particularly in um, Rabbit, for instance, your essay on Rabbit Syndrome, uh, the point that there are other English-speaking nations in the post-colonial world that seem to do a better job of this, of having some sort of rapprochement with um, the injustices of the past. Is there a particular Australian malaise that makes it difficult for us to actually acknowledge what's happened and then move on? Is this distinctive to us or is this a global phenomenon? Well, I think the other countries have handled it differently. and not. A, I mean, the Americans have completely romanticised it. I mean, they made heroes of their Indian killers. Um, you know, there are monuments everywhere to everyone from Kit Carson to Davy Crockett to William Tecumseh Sherman, um, who, after all, invented the expression, the final solution for the mm. Plains Indians. Um, so, and, and, you know, they romanticised it in a way. And yet they also... You know, if you if you take American films of the 60s and 70s, those revisionist films that people like Arthur Penn made, looked at American history again, and we think of Hollywood as you know the great myth makers, but Hollywood has at times um, looked hard at their at American history in ways that we never have. Um, now we didn't have the we didn't have the convenience of a Hollywood. It's always been tougher on on the Australian film industry, but I, I don't know that we've been particularly incapable of this, except at a political level. Um, I think we've had uh, political 
leadership which has never really found it um, convenient to accept cold, hard looks at our history. And that makes it then very hard to talk about things like reconciliation or treaties or um, the voice to parliament, um, all of which it seems to me could have been um, even just approached differently. I mean, the speed with which the voice to parliament was dispatched um, uh, by the federal government was remarkable. I mean, it, really remarkable. The, the goodwill that was written into that, the grace of it, um, was um, remarkable in itself, but it was knocked aside as if it had, uh, you know, been drummed up by some reprobates, you know, sitting under a tree. But there's a sort of a, a step back, isn't there, is that we can look to government and we can look to leadership, but if we haven't got the big narratives in place, and you're right, at length about Manning-Clark versus, say, a Blaney absence of narrative or a big narrative, sometimes you need a big picture in order for governments or communities to actually do anything. In fact, in Rabbit Syndrome, you, meant, you note that all countries need to tell a sacred story about themselves, or at least all people do, you qualify it. Um, is that our problem, is that we actually struggle to tell a big narrative and, as a result, stumble when it comes to the small ones? Yeah, I think that that is true. I mean, all, all these things are... Uh, I mean, I, I feel like I could argue 17 different points yes. on an average yeah. day when I'm thinking about this. <laughs> yeah. You know, because the American big narrative is all that holds it together, you know, and it's... Um, what... And, uh, you know, what, what Trump did, in a sense, was confront the big narrative and say, I don't accept it. And it turned out that half the American voting population thought that this was a good, good idea, even as they went around trumpeting the Constitution, as if they understood what the Constitution was and what it meant. The Americans have, have stuck to this sort of giant narrative. It's curious, you know, where... You know, if, if you go to the Lincoln Memorial and you see Lincoln's second inaugural carved into the wall on one side, What's remarkable about that is that the narrative is very hard to understand. It doesn't, it doesn't give itself, it, its meaning up easily. It's Lincoln in, in a sort of tortured mental vein trying to make sense of a civil war which becomes the defining moment in American history. We're trying to work out what role God, what God's purpose was in this, if there is a God. It's the most extraordinarily tortured document. Now, that won't do for a big narrative because it's much too hard for ordinary people to understand or for people to give time to. So they accept the more simple narrative. These are, we know for, you know, we know how dangerous these simple narratives can be, these mythifications of, 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 of uh, a people's history. So I don't really want one in Australia. See, I've always thought that the narrative of Australia ought to be, um, I, I, ideally would be open and honest and take account, I like the postmodern idea, take account of all these conflicting ideas and make that a virtue. That seemed to me the great moment in the 1990s when were we to have gone with the Republic then, history didn't suit us, but were, it, it would have been a Republic without the marching and saluting or, or bowing to a sacred narrative. 
the sacred narrative would be there are many narratives. Um, that what we do well here is, is uh, tolerate the differences between us all and look at our history honestly and think clearly about what our possibilities might be. But the danger, of course, of a multiplicity of narratives is it leads to a relativity of truth, a relativism of truth, and we've just come through four extraordinary years um, in the Western world where the very nature of what is truth and what is fact is not just contestable but has actually become a plaything. Um, you have a, uh, one of your more recent pieces where you talk about all the way with Donald Jay and observe that Canberra's response to the Trump years was... Um, remarkably uh, characterless, almost faceless, as Australia seemed to lie low and be quite happy to just sort of accept a supine role. Um, maybe a rhetorical question, I don't know. Was the strange silence of Canberra in the Trump years in some ways vindicated now? We feel, was it a bad dream, what we went through for four years, or do we ignore the broader lessons of what's happened to the American polis at our peril? Well, we don't know whether the dream is over or whether it's going to be a recurring dream. We don't know you know, in, in, in broad and perhaps tendentious political historical terms. We don't know whether it's the cap putsch of 1923 and we'll be followed by something more horrible in seven or eight years' time or whether it's just going to fade away and those 74 million people who voted for him will give up on him. That seems to me unlikely. We don't know what the historical fallout's going to be. I think the, the, the silence from Canberra... I think the thing we don't consider about our supine alliance with the United States is the, uh, the consequences for, the, for our sort of national disposition. If, you, if you're a country that is always supine, that is always prepared to play the sheriff, the deputy rather, then that has consequences for the national character, I mean, at least for the quality of the leadership or the possibilities of where we might go. I think that's, you know, I think countries rather like people grow through courage through actually taking things on and we in our position in the world don't take things on it's not so long as the alliance exists we won't we have no need to take things on we need only to go to washington every now and again and bow and scrape it it it's rather telling, it, it might sound a little uh, fatuous, but it, it is interesting given the way both political, both sides of politics say how much we are listened to in the United States, that in Obama's giant first volume of his biography, there is not a single mention of Australia. Now, there's no need for us to get upset about this. However, it does say something, that we, we are taken for granted. And if you're taken for granted for long enough, that has an effect on your character. Now, I think, I don't know, I'm, I'm not prepared to say that we should abandon the alliance with the United States, but we certainly should think about it. And we shouldn't accept this constant notion that, I mean, if we are listened to all the time, then um, we must be giving them the wrong advice because it hasn't been going well. It's been a hallmark, hasn't it, of recent years? It was, there was a time when APEC was a, a phrase constantly on our lips when engagement with the Asia-Pacific with an, an American tinge was very much part of the rhetoric, and yet all of that seems to have vanished in the last 15 years. Are, are we witnessing an American withdrawal from our region? Are we seeing that sort of 
east of Suez equivalent phenomenon happening, or is there a, a prospect that we might actually see State Department and other departments in Washington start to worry about our part of the world again? I guess I'm asking here about China. Oh, I think I think um, I mean I'm, I'm not an expert on this by any means, but I I think we're now with Biden we go back to um, you know the American Empire. It, 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 we will go back to Obama, Hillary Clinton type um, policies with you know the the several hundred U.S. bases around the world. Um, sitting there as evidence of empire while empire is constantly denied. Our fealty will continue to be expected um, while the word fealty will never be used. Um, and uh, I, I think nothing much will change. Obama, but rather Biden, uh, will pursue exactly the same policies as Obama, I think. Where we fit in that, I don't know, except that it's always seemed to me to be kidding yourself to say as we have for so long, we don't need to choose between China and the United States. When we're in the pocket of the United States, we've already chosen. So when we deal with China, it's it's insane to think that the Chinese will look at us and say, "Well, you're a you know you're you're a fair dealer." It's just not going to happen. And I think uh, I think it's all it's also the, 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 there's sort of one example where this this seems to me to undermine our credibility anywhere in the world. If, when America sort of talks about the Chinese being a great bully, it, it immediately misrepresents its own history fundamentally. America has been the great bully in, the, in Asia and the Pacific. Uh, you know, the Monroe Doctrine, the open door policy. The, the open door policy was open your door or we'll kick it down. <laughs> and that, that applied for 25 years and they did. Um, so there is, and we should be able to go to China with that sort of nuance in mind and say, well, look, they're calling you a bully, but um, we know that the Americans have been bullies too. Whereas we actually go there saying, buying the whole deal. Now, you know, that seems to me, it's easy to sit outside foreign policy arguments and find this rather galling, but I, I don't really buy the idea that we can go on negotiating effectively in bad faith as a deputy when we're pretending we're not being a deputy. It, it, or we convince ourselves we're not deputies. Well, it relates back to your earlier point about the kind of uh, myopia about and, or being able to look squarely in the eye exactly what our situation is, where we are on the globe, where what region we do inhabit. <laughs> what our interests actually are. Um, is this an example of where perhaps some of the myths we tell ourselves are not serving us terribly well, where we're actually, as Clausewitz says, fighting the last war, not the one to come? Yeah, well, I think that's, that's probably true. I think we, we do seem to react to certain, you know, there are certain sort of stimuli, and every now and again a politician hits it, like John Howard hit it with that line about, you know, we'll decide who comes here and the circumstances in which they come, um, which was an option not given to the original inhabitants of this country. And so I suppose it's sort of nitpicking historians or quasi-historians like me who, who you know, have the, have the, are at liberty to pull these ideas apart. But if you, if you, if you don't, 
you hear that. It, it, look, this is interesting. If you if you reverse that, if you were in John Howard's office when he came up with that line, or whoever gave it to him, you would feel enormously pleased. That one has really struck a, a, a you know, it's like uh, hitting the gong. Beautiful. Mm. People love it. So from within that sort of bubble, everything looks terrific. From outside, you think this is this is bad. I mean, this is going to this this is our our kind of hairy-chested excuse to exclude anyone we don't like, to run Manus Island as we see, to do all sorts of hairy-chested things, uh, to revert to denialism, you know, cheap nationalism is, you know, given a free hand. So, uh, you know, we're, we're always going to be a bit, a bit like that. I, and I, I think the role of anyone who comes from the other side of... Uh, the political fence is to try and pull these things apart rather than rolling over. And that's in the nature of another political party. So, well, that one works, so we'll go with that too. Um, but I think if you're trying to write from outside it, um, you want to prize that apart and say, well, hang on, it's a really nasty idea, actually. Well, Howard's line, um, we'll decide the, who comes to our country and the circumstances under which they come, was about a particular set of circumstances. But the way in which ideas reverberate down through time is perfectly illustrated, isn't it, in the last year when we've seen state governments take that as a licence to actually um, play the strong man by protecting their citizenry through strong state border um, uh, enactments un under the guise of health. It's not to suggest that it's not appropriate, but it it's, was sort of set in the mindset of our, our nation at that time, is that actually you can shut the borders and in some way create a safe zone where some of your myths are sacred. Um, we're speaking, yeah. obviously, from South Australia here, which has uh, successfully, I think you could say, uh, maintained its borders. Western Australia has made it almost into a, a civic obsession, uh, having the walls up. And as someone who negotiated the... Um, Adelaide Airport recently in 45 minutes of trying to explain who I was, you're suddenly aware that your Australian citizenship amounts for nothing compared to your state citizenship. <laughs> we're, we're still, we're still a, a bunch of, of colonies. Um, we have to be cautious, don't we, about this, about the idea that actually we can exclude the big bad world and maintain our sort of naive dad and Dave purity here in, here in our homelands? Well, probably xenophobia is probably, you know, and tribalism is pretty well you know, screwed into our DNA, I think, and you can, you can break it down into smaller and smaller, you know, regional Australians feel that. I went into a pub in northeastern Victoria a few weeks ago and copped a blast, you know, like you felt about as unwelcome as it's possible to be because you'd come from the city and the city was a place where Dan Andrews lived and he made people wear masks when they didn't need them and he was didn't look after regions and so oh, on. So, you so know, they're worried about like, the ideas you might bring, not the actual COVID. Uh, well, I think probably both. No, it, I mean, we, we do. And, and politics is largely, um, if you could come up with a decent sort of xenophobic slogan, you're set. I mean... Trump's wall is another one, and we know the, the hideous dangers of all this. Look at um, the West Australian Premier's popularity ratings, I think, are sort of 112% or something <laughs> now. Which, uh, um, no, it, 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 there is a danger attached to it. Of course there is. Um, 
but again, I mean, I, I don't, I don't see what else you can do but try and manage this into some, you know, to, to keep trying to provoke a certain amount of honesty. Um, I, and uh, I don't know how you do that. No one, no, look, I haven't figured out this COVID thing at all. I'm, I'm actually pro Dan Andrews. I, I think he did. <laughs> I was, I was, I was glad that um, we, we came out of it when things were looking bad. And I, but I, not everyone feels the same way here. Um, so I guess, you know, we are, we're all, look, uh, th this conversation could lead into a discussion of tribalism, mm. really, um, because that seems to me to be what has happened to democratic politics um, in ways that, uh, that really were unknown 40 years ago. Um, it's now... Um, sort of dangerous to um, to try and have a conversation in the middle. Well, it's you very hard to negotiate. You you write elsewhere in in Watsonia about actually what it was like growing up. Your generation, the generation before you, in a deeply secular society, the world of uh, a, pro a world of Protestants and Catholics, or if you take Manning Clark's system, Protestants, Catholics, and the people who are um, the children of the Enlightenment, so to speak. But a lot of those old tribes no longer function in Australia in the way they used to, or have actually literally vanished, and vanished in the space of a generation. And But we still seem to act as if the machine is serving tribes that no longer exist and has nothing to say about the new tribes that do exist. And In fact, you, in Rabbit Syndrome, which is you know, nearly 20 years ago now, you say the point has been reached where the words fair go or Gallipoli, they just don't do their job. If, and, and then you extrapolate out to flag and monarchy and so on. Our symbols and rhetoric aren't actually serving a national purpose. It's, as I say, it's nearly 20 years ago that Rabbit Syndrome was written. Have, are we moving any closer to finding a new set of rhetorical flourishes or a new set of symbols that might actually serve a new tribalism? Or is the, is the task to bring Australia to, back to the old verities? I, I don't look. I really don't know the answer to that, Tom, and I probably never will. Um, but I think um, I think the the the, um, the problem for politics now is that uh, I guess what's changed in the in the in the twenty years since then is media media platforms have changed. The way people get information has changed. The, I think what also look that in ways that didn't exist before, a personal opinion, any personal opinion, as good as in, is as good as any other opinion. I think one of the good things that COVID might have done is persuade us that, you know, we probably should listen to expert opinions from time to time. They do get us through, but whether that'll make any long-term difference, I don't know. The politics has returned for a few months. It looked. You know, the, the politicians were stepping aside and letting science speak, or frontline workers or whatever speak. But I don't... Let me give you an example. I don't know whether this helps explain it. If you watched Q&A the other night, I, I could actually find myself watching Q&A since COVID because it had less politics and more um, people on it. But if you, if you watched that show the other night, there was one person who spoke English... And that was the guy in Melbourne, not because he came from Melbourne, <laughs> but the guy in Melbourne. 
he spoke in concrete terms the whole way through. And what he did, among other things, was show up the others with the greatest respect to them all, less respect to one or two than some of us, but show up the others for speaking just blarney, just bilge. Um, and uh, he, I'm sure 90% of people who watched that show liked him above the others. And, and, it, and what had, because there was, you had the tribes on either end and you had that Mike Baird character in the middle and, and um, who was just talking nonsense. In, in a way, what you saw was a sort of pantomime of politics on the stage in Sydney, of, of people talking, not only, not only from a tribal point of view, but, but they were united in one thing, and that is that they, had, they were saying very little at all. And what was also extraordinary about that was that they, is that when you start talking, you know, accountability, excellence, transparency, over and over and over again, so you're talking that sort of political managerial nonsense, you'd actually lose, debate becomes impossible. No one is talking about anything that is concrete. No one is talking from actual experience. And one of the signs of this, one of the signs of this decay is that they can't, that they have no sense of proportion when it comes to empathy. They overlay, you know, they overlay what they're saying in managerial speak, trans transparency, accountability, with this sort of rather sickening talk about how, much I'm, you know, how I feel for you, how I reach out for you, all this sort of stuff, which is, you know, is, is out of proportion to civil discourse, you don't. It sounds so phony, and they know people. Uh, people in public life no, no longer see what is so phony in this. So we've lost a, a, a sort of educated. I mean, educated in the sense of understanding how how life works, how you relate to other people, and we now do. We've we've got it all wrong. Whereas the guy in Melbourne was talking about life as it is in nursing homes that he has seen. But this, and he stuck on it. This, um, this goes to one of your other broad themes across Watsonia, which is sort of um, uh, what Shakespeare would call speaking what we feel, not what we ought to say. The, the difference between actually engaging with issues and spin, what's come to be called spin, the idea that um, in some ways the instinctive and reflexive position from anyone in a position of power is to first work out how to position the issue before and then often instead of actually talking to it. And that crept, has crept in in your time as an observer, hasn't it? And the most startling and in some ways quite alarming episode is, is playing out in front of us at the moment in, when we discover exactly what, how safe or unsafe a space our own parliament is for women um, and the long-term skeletons that are in many people's cupboards uh, and potentially the way in which... This is going to affect a whole range of things about our elected officials, and yet the initial um, the initial response is always, "How do I position my government? How do I position myself? How am I perceived to be empathic as opposed to actually express any empathy?" And to sort of ship off responsibility to my wife for telling me how to feel. Uh, do you, do you? Uh, what's going on there? Is this just a reflection of the changing media? Um, platforms, or is there something else happening? Are we witnessing something deeper? Do you think? 
Yeah, that, I mean, it, that is one of the big questions, and I wish I knew mm -hmm. uh, how to untangle it. The, you see, um, Walid Ali had a good piece a few months ago about the Gladys Berejiklian business with the chap from Wagga. And he pointed out that the entire media thought that Gladys Berejiklian had committed, if not quite an enormity, sufficient to have her in other times removed from office. Mm. Um, but no one in the public seemed to think that. You know, that, the, that the public, in other words, was more, much more forgiving than the press were going to be about. People who were dismissed for much milder misdemeanors would be you know, turning in their grave, many of them. So the public, the public perception of how politics should be played is not can't be taken as a given. They're not in every case any longer um, prepared to say that uh, misbehaviour should be punished equally before the law all the time. Whereas this business, within a political office, it seems to me that is a calculation which has now been made. That the, the that it is that the reflex reflex always should be to managing the problem in terms of what your polling is telling you or what your instinct is telling you about how people are going to respond to this. So the first instinct of that office and of the other officers involved in this was to cover up. To the point now, we I mean, I frankly, the, the thought that an entire prime minister's office and other officers beyond that did not tell the prime minister when he was going into an election in 2019 that he may one he may get a question while he's opening a you know a cow shed in Winton or something about what had happened in Senator Reynolds' office is just beyond comprehension. So either either the internal workings of political officers have changed fundamentally, or someone has told a very big lie here about what, who knew what when. But, I mean, the, the more interesting question is how, how has it come to this? I mean, how, how could so many people know and yet the Prime Minister managed to say that he doesn't know? Maybe he doesn't know. But if he doesn't know, then he should sack his entire staff. It's, so, I mean, to, to pull all that apart and say, you know, what has changed in politics is quite beyond me. Well, let's just go to the specific issue of accountability, just, you know, like actual accountability. of life in the, in the parliament. I mean, I was told two and a half years ago by someone very close to Barnaby Joyce, before Barnaby's business emerged, that the, the parliament had, been, had become a, um, a kind of, a sort of Sodom and Gomorrah. I mean, it was like a, it was a permanent orgy of sex, drugs and rock and roll and God knows what, and it had to be all sorted out. It wasn't like that when I was there. You, so, I don't know. You, you I don't know should see happened. North Terrace, let me tell I've you. I've lost you, Tom. Where have you gone? I uh, can't hear him. Uh, you've lost me, have you? Can you, can you, hear, me, can you hear anything, Don? <coughs> have we lost the audio line? Just as I was going to go to questions as well. We'll just we'll try and re reboot that. Otherwise, I'm going to... back. you back. Uh, you've got me again. Can you hear me, Don? You, Tom, I haven't heard the last two minutes. That's all right. I understand. 
Wait, uh, I, might, I might actually move the su subject on if that's all right. Are you you're hearing me fine yeah, yeah. now? Okay, good. Yep, sure. um, we've got about 10 minutes before we go to questions, so I really would like to return to the subject of America, if only because one of the ways you could read Watsonia is a memoir on your part of an increasing fascination. It's not good, I can't hear you. You're still not hearing me? I'll give it a few minutes, folks, and otherwise we might just try and have to applaud very loudly so he can hear us from Adelaide. I'm grateful that we managed to get uh, 35 minutes in. Uh, I appreciate that Adelaide Writers Week is taking an extraordinary, uh, going out an extraordinary limb here to try and keep this event going in the circumstances where we can't fly people in, which I'm sure, well, yes, I'm very grateful for, but we have, it's, um, you can imagine the heart-in-mouth nature of some of this. I'm very pleased. Have I got you, Don? Can you hear me? No, I think we're going to... Um, this might be a, a time to just take a little pause and talk amongst ourselves because I'll, I'll give them one more reboot. I almost want to share with you the question before Don hears it so you can... Yeah, I can hear you. And I can hear you. It's almost a conversation. Shall we resume? Okay. Yes. Right. I think he's talking to a tech there. No, I can't hear him. No. All right. I'll give it one more minute. I have to keep talking, so he just so he can hear me. I can hear him now. Yes. Okay. Right, Don. I'm going to proceed. I'm going to ask you a question, and if you don't answer, I'm going to answer no. it myself. All right. Uh, I need a thumbs up from you there. No, there's no chance that I'm coming through. No, I think we've reached that point where our technological aspirations have exceeded our capacities. I was going to ask about Hurricane Katrina, and so I'd exhort you all, in Don's absence, to read his essay, Faith, Freedom and Katrina, in Watsonia. It's an extraordinary um, survey of his experience of how the US, United States government failed to respond to the implications of Hurricane Katrina in 2006. And it contains the immortal line, gee, he writes, well, it's just a beautiful line where he observes that America is a country where God is both in the storm and in the pancake batter. And if that seems slightly obtuse, if you read it, it becomes crystal clear. It's very, very clever in its um, explanation. Again, and his capacity as a prophet is remarkable, 14, 15 years before Trump, to bring attention to a phenomenon that is completely... Uh, uh, we, we understand on a daily basis. And I, even if Don can't hear me, I hope you'll feel through I the can ether. can hear you now, Tom. Good. Well, then, you, then I'm, I'm about to, I'm about to um, put some wind under your wings. <laughs> no, in, in Faith, Freedom and Katrina, you say... Uh, th he's talking about Americans. They wonder aloud about their federal government and that government's ability to cope with a pandemic. And he's writing in 2006 here and drawing attention to the failure of government and using, just as one illustration, an example of how governments are about to fail... It, when, that sent, when you read that sentence and realise it was written in political terms two or three cycles ago, to actually put your finger on the nature of what a pandemic might mean to a government such as the United States federal government after the lessons of Katrina, you realise that you're dealing with someone who has almost Tiresias-like abilities to see. 
Um, we're going to have to wind it up. I'm sorry. I'm, I, I can't with any confidence <laughs> promise that if you do ask a question, it's going to be heard. Um, well, if he goes on talking, you know, singing the praises of the book, I'm happy to sit here and just listen. <laughs> All right, Don. If that's the case, do, do you want to run a do you want to run a risk of a question, Don? Floundering, really. No. We can, no, I'm going to I'm going to have to ask you to thank him. Thank. Could you thank Don Watson for his time? Thank you. My apologies that it didn't. Was we weren't able to go. The name of the book is Watsonia. A Writing Life by Don Watson. It's that thick and you'll get through it in a weekend. I can guarantee you it's riveting. Thank you to Don and thank you to you and thank you for everybody in the time of COVID for coming together.